I hope you're all doing really well today and today I thought I'd bring a little bit of a different format to Losh for the first ever episode of season one. After all of the sort of feedback that I got back from the pre-season episodes, the first two that I did, I feel like it'd be good just to sort of try this new um, dual platform sort of approach. So I've decided to make some slides for the first season just to see if this made it a little bit more useful for students and people who are just wanting to understand a little bit more about certain aspects of what I want to speak about in this podcast. So Losh, um, first of all, is a podcast where we will talk about many different things. It's going to be tri-weekly, I think, just because I've got a lot going on, especially when it gets into term time. Um, they'll be focused around discussions of commercial awareness and understanding how fashion does affect law and business, as well as having a little bit about fashion itself, whether it be new collection reviews, fashion weeks that are happening at this point in time and events that are happening as well. Um, some of the major things that I am looking forward to be discussing within this podcast will be the runways of Louis Vuitton and Hermes. They're basically two of my most favourite events of the year and also Jacques Mou. Um, some of my absolute favourites. So just before I get into what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to quickly just give some preliminary words. I just want to say thank you for everyone's patience while I was trying to decide really what I wanted to do with the podcast and what way I wanted to make it lean towards. And I just want to say thanks for all the support that I've had. And I hope you find it all useful and somewhat interesting. Um, that's the aim of the podcast, um, just to sort of speak about what I love, research a little bit and understand for myself and then just sort of give it to you guys as well for you to enjoy and understand what I love learning about as well. So the main things that we're going to be talking about today are what is intellectual property um, and what comes sort of within that bracket. Um, fashion law, what does this mean and what does this mean for student, students studying fashion law? Oh, my little display monitor here is going a bit crazy. Um, next, we're going to be looking at some examples of um, usefulness of IP within fashion law. And then we're going to delve into a little bit about what we're going to be talking about in the next podcast and um, just really generalising what we're going to be speaking about because um, I've already got that one already sorted out and ready to record and I'm super, super excited for the next one as well. So the first main thing I'm going to say is this is Intellectual Property and Fashion Law 101. Very basic, very beginners with some contemporary case law. Don't want to make it too confusing because IP isn't fashion law and fashion law isn't IP. They're very, IP is found within fashion law, but it doesn't mean that it is only just that. So without further ado, let's get smashed straight into what we're going to be talking about today. So what is intellectual property law? Um, I am absolutely in awe with the subject of the law. I find it so interesting and I thought that I could just give you a little speak about this today and just sort of go over what it really does mean. Um, so intellectual property is sort of a way to have legal control over certain things that are more creative. Um, the main pieces of IP that you'll find within the law are copyright, patent, design rights and trademark. Um, these are the ones that are most commonly talked about in general, never mind just within the fashion space. I feel like it's really important just to mention that all these can be used all across different industries. Um, you might find that especially if there's any University of Aberdeen students, there might be uh, petroleum firms um, or energy companies that might have certain things trademarked um, or patents for the ways that they, as you know, take out petroleum from the ground, things like that. Um, there's some of these things that are protected and can be 
um, sort of foreign court if there's any breach of that. Um, I'm going to start off quickly with copyright because I won't really be speaking about this much today at all. Um, this can be found in the Copyright Designs and Design Rights and Patents Act 1988, where creators of literary, dramatic, musical and art artistic works gain control over rights and their distribution of work. One of the main ways that I would say that this is most clear within our generation Gen Z is with internet usage. When you think about it, when you're creating YouTube videos like I do on my channel, you often either have to, if it's copyright and work, you can't monetize that just due to the fact that you don't own the copyright, so therefore you can't profit off of that. Or you have um, Creative Commons licensed music. Um, which you might know and recognise in TikToks and YouTube videos where you can use them with with specific rights that mean that you can monetize your work without having to infringe any copyright. So a good example of that would be Epidemic Sounds. They are a subscription-based company which use copyright licenses in order to distribute music materials for digital creatives in order to make money that way and still let um, YouTubers sort of cash in on the work that they've made and created. Um, another way that you might look at it is when there's authors of books, for example, JK Rowling has copyright over her books and also licenses a lot of her work to um, film companies, I think it, I'm pretty sure it's Warner Bros, and that she can license it through that as well. So that's copyright for you there. Um, Things take a bit of a different turn with design rights. I actually maybe think I should start with patents because I think that's the one that comes on to design rights just over here afterwards. So a patent is um, sort of a, presents ownership or sort of gives you the right to um, the patent when an invention is new. So there's a step criteria found within the Patent Act 1977 and the CDPA 1988. So, the invention has to be new for the patent to be created. It has to be capable. It has to be involve an inventive step. So for example, you can't just take something that isn't new and novel and something that you've not done and make it a patent. It's got to be revolutionary in a sense where you've got to have done something. For example, I don't know if you've made a new way to, if you've made a new thing that can take petroleum out of the ground easier, for example, or you found a new way to cut butter faster, something like that. I don't know, it can be as crazy as that. Um, there's got to be an inventive step. It's also got to be capable of industrial application. This is extremely um, common in when it comes into fashion. So for example, there might be ways to create garments which is faster or more cost efficient for companies and that sort of machinery or tools or certain material might be classified as a patent because it has this application and the grant is the grant of a patent for it is not excluded by two and then also i think it's really clear to mention that the things that you find up in copyright cannot be patented they're very different things um i try to think of it as copyright's more of a creative thing patents more of like a physical thing they can both be creative in a sense but that's more like creative works. For example, I could copyright my um, YouTube videos if I wanted. They are copyrighted in their mind, um, where all rights are reserved, of course, because I don't really think I'm that good at picking copyright free music and I don't monetize them. So um, that's a possibility for me, although I couldn't patent my YouTube videos because there's no industrial application for my work. 
and it also doesn't involve an inventive step. I just use Final Cut Pro and Zoom and edit myself. I've not, there's no inventive step that I've created there. Um, but yes, um, that's patents there. There, oh, oh, there usually is also a time frame for that as well. Um, it can be extended, but the ultimate aim of patented work is so that it can be used in industrial application later by the masses. So yeah, design rights is also a little bit more um, useful for fashion in a sense, I would definitely say, especially because of its unregistered process. So the UK Intellectual Property Office and EU directives um, allow the design rights to be created for 15 years after it's been first sold. For example, a garment, um, a dress, which we will come on to later on, um, that was a design rights case that we'll be looking at between um, fashion market, fashion competitors, sorry. And so, yeah, so it's 15 years after the product's first been sold or 10 years after it's been created and not sold. Um, it can also be further extended and pretty sure what you've got to apply for that. And it also includes 2D or 3D shapes, colors, textures, materials, and ornamentation. Um, there's a lot of work still going on this right now and there's a lot of talks within the fashion law community about strengthening these rights still, um, especially within the EU and also sort of in terms of international harmonisation, where, for example, the current processes within countries like China and Russia aren't as strong, quote unquote, as they are within the UK and the EU. Not too sure, I've not really read up too much about it. It's something I'd like to learn a little bit more about. So we might see that in future podcast episodes, we'll see that for you there is design rights now trademark also one of the most important things ever in order to maintain a brand there's a brand identity and there's certain things that you'll want to use in order to keep your brand protected and this is where trademarks come in really usefully so this can be a single word that your company wants to use a logo a picture or a mixture of any of these things anything that's graphically depicted as described by immigrant ellis um, is capable of being trademarked it also must be distinctive in order for your brand to have that protection there or your product have that um, protection. Um, it must also not be descriptive and deceptive, as we can see up here. So for example, it can't be sporty for sports clothing or silky for cotton goods. Um, it's got to be on the dot, kind of explanatory, not too descriptive either, but it's got to be something that's unique, especially if it's your brand, you want to protect that for sure. Um, I'll try to move out of the way here. I'm trying to figure out it's like got me in a really weird way. Can't be um, a common name or geographical name. Cannot be flags, heraldic device, although some can be accepted. Um, a mark not, must not also conjoin against an earlier registered mark. So that just ensures that every single patent is uh, trademark is protected in order to keep them distinctive and their brands protected. So for example, um, there's a big case, I think everyone will remember, between Kylie Cosmetics and Kylie Minogue, where the Kylie Jenner company, Kylie Cosmetics, tried to put in Kylie as a registered trademark and Kylie Minogue successfully declined that one. Um, she successfully rejected that as Kylie Minogue had used Kylie for a very, very, very long time before Kylie Jenner Cosmetics came back out. And yeah, that's what that's used for. So this is sort of an overall 101 of types of intellectual property and we will move on to fashion law um, quite briefly. Um, so what is fashion law, you might be asking yourself. Well, 
Fashion law isn't just a type of law, it is a niche which encompasses all forms of law in the context of fashion. This was made quite clear to me by Gina Bebe at Withers Worldwide in her seminar with the Fashion Law Edit. She kind of made it clear that it's not just one thing, it encompasses all forms of law, but kind of maintains the fact that it's centered in fashion. Um, I think what I mainly want to just say here is that although we're talking about intellectual property today, it's not the be all and end all of fashion law. For example, fashion brands and luxury goods companies will always tend to buy over one another. There might be issues with acquisition and mergers. There might be contractual issues there, not just IP. There might be issues over property when, for example, I don't have to think of a brand, Urban Outfitters might want to buy a space within Aberdeen to create an Urban Outfitters place there. They'd have to have lawyers that were fit and purposefully ready to understand and negotiate for that fashion brand to get a space within Aberdeen. That's just a good example um, of the fact that fashion law, just because we're dealing with clothes, doesn't mean that it's just got to be the clothes themselves. There's a whole company driving the creation of fashion and that has to be remembered. But I think one thing that not everyone kind of understands as lawyers is the fact that fashion law isn't just something to be taken kind of as like a little cute small square of the fashion space or a part of the economy, a small part of the economy. The projections in revenue in luxury fashion markets internationally have been estimated to be around 107.9 billion US dollars in 2022, with keen interest in luxury eyewear, luxury clothing, bags and accessories, and luggage and storage. This has been seen to be extremely true, especially with the um, hiking of prices by certain companies, for example. I think I've spoken about it on my pre-season podcast, but Chanel's just about 20% price increase on certain bags. Louis Vuitton's doing the same thing, especially with the Chinese market, since a lot of Chinese shoppers are starting to buy more domestically now. They're making imports a lot more expensive and brands, just because they're not buying it within Europe, for example, in Paris specifically for Hermes and Louis Vuitton, it's so much more expensive and you can sort of see where that revenue is coming in from there with the digitalization of the fashion market as well for example luxury secondhand goods there's a booming secondhand market as well so luxury fashion in general is starting to get a lot more appreciation in terms of financial budget um, and family households compared to before and i think that's why it's really important that the law protects it and it's taken very seriously because if you're going to be spending a lot of money on it these companies have to be ready and protected through the law in order to maintain their brand, establish their brands, correct their wrongdoings and make sure that they're keeping a legal and moral obligation to um, do their work in an intelligent way. So first of all, I want to have a quick look at design rights and fashion law and how this can be used in practice. So the first case that I really want to talk about today is Original Beauty Technology Company Limited and Others versus G4K Fashion Limited and Others. This is a very, very recent case where claimants from the Original Beauty Technology Co which creates mistress rocks and house of CB dresses. We're actually suing G4K Fashion, which is Opoly, which was a brand at, um, that was alleged to have been within this case. And Tegan Miller McCormick wrote an amazing article about this on Catton.com, so I'd really, really recommend you guys to read it when you've got time. Um, it will be in the description when I can, when I find time to put it in there. It's great really recommend all her written pieces, especially Catton.com for IP in general, it's absolutely great. But this case um, is about the infringement of design rights for dresses from House of CB and Mr. Strokes by O'Pauly. 
So in terms of this case, let me move over for you guys. So within this case, all three fashion companies share a market within the fast fashion industry. Not that I agree with fast fashion completely, but they are dominating the bandage and bodycon style and um, sort of space within the UK, US and even the EU markets especially. Um, just until recently, Love Island used to partner with fast fashion companies, not any of these brands, but brands like this, for example, Misguided, um, PLT, they're all very similar in the way that they're fast fashion and Motel Rock as well actually is a really good example. They've all got this market share for having very similar dresses, very similar aesthetics. Um, it's very much minimal aesthetic, tan. Just to clarify guys, when I say skinny vibes here, this is an issue with their branding, which I don't agree with at all. It's just an observation of their market audience. Get all skinny vibes. Um, and they, within this market, it's obviously very clear that they've got to sort of dupe each other. Well, they don't have to, but in order for market shares, I'm assuming this is what these companies do. Allegedly guys, allegedly. But um, although similar, each brand has a different stylist and design mates over their different things that they create. But in this case, it was found that um, there was 91 potential designs that were infringed by G4K, e.g. Opoly, um, which were similar to the ones by Mistress Rocks and House of CB, which is extremely interesting to think about because when you think about it, they're different brands, you'd assume they had different styles and senses. Am I right, girls? But within this judgment, it was found quite clearly that um, 20 of the pieces were potentially in violation of unregistered design rights and there were seven pieces that were directly in violation to me directly in violation of these design rights and therefore Opoly was liable for lost profits of £74,847.82 reasonable royalty for the design infringement of £75,246.64 and additional damage costs of £300,000 um, so that totaled £450,154.56. In this case, signified that damages can be inquired and sought within cases of intellectual property infringement, equally, equally within cases of design rights and copyright alike. This sort of case to me sort of made it seem more serious to these brands that are fast fashion and... Oh, oh I can move this. Great. That's brilliant. <laughs> This made it extremely clear to me that um, the courts want to take these extremely seriously now and hold these people accountable for their actions. And I think that's super important when it comes to fast fashion and the growing um, emergence of fashion and luxury fashion, just making sure that even if something isn't registered or trademarked, that it can still be held accountable for clearly infringing what they've made. I feel like designers should be given full rights to what they design. And when people steal their creative sort of ideas and designs that should be able to be sought in courts. I think this is a great decision by the UK courts and it just prevents things from being stolen. So yeah, that's all I've got to say in this judgment. And this is a clear way in seeing how design rights work within the UK law, especially UK fashion law. And next, my favorite we're gonna talk about right now, we're gonna be talking about trademarks and fashion law. This next case had me quote unquote gagged um i've been following this for months i've got to say it's extremely interesting to me and it is the case of hermes and meta birkin where nft meets trademark meets fashion law so um i think it's really important to 
further explain this because it's still being litigated in court. Um, I think that's the right word. It's still being fought within the Californian courts right now. It's not a UK case, but it's really important in terms of seeing how trademarks can really be influenced in the future by the metaverse and the future of the digitalization of the fashion law market. So within this case, there is um, Mr. Rothschild. He is a painter. Um, artist and creates non-fungible tokens which is in essence digital art that you can sell through cryptocurrency it's quite novel within the industry but a lot of brands such as adidas and nike for example are getting into this space um, and i'm pretty sure vestier collective did something quite similar with this as well and also there is hermes which has the very very famous birkin bag every fashion lover's dream bag in all fairness and the issue within this case comes with the fact that it's very clear that the meta birkin is a birkin but it's in the metaverse but what rights does hermes have in this case well that's what we'll have a little look at here so this case revolves around the use of the name birkin and the design of the birkin bag being used by mason rothschild sorry i've just got an invoice from apple um, so the design of the Birkin bag being used by the artist Mason Rothschild within his NFT drop Meta Birkin. So he used the name um, Meta Birkin, but obviously Birkin's within that. And he also used the trademark design of the Birkin bag within this NFT drop. But the issue in this case is extremely novel um, issue in the sense that the alleged infringement trademarks do not match the description as expressed by Hermes within their trademark usage. So that means in essence, the Birkin is a physical bag that you can open, carry and hold. With a Meta Birkin, you can't do that. It's a piece of art. It's not the same. And the fact that the trademark has been used specifically in this way and that it's not specifically also including for the Metaverse can be quite difficult for the courts and can be difficult for litigation as well. Don't mind me running, guys. But Due to the Meta Birkin being an NFT, the law is a rather great area with some areas of law, with the same area of the law within this Californian legal dispute having been questioned by the UK IPO in recent calls for expert advice and trademark implementation within the metaverse and beyond real life usage. This is really important to mention because the UK IPO has stated recently in their website through a notice that they're wanting to see more professional legal professionals come in and give their views on this, given their 10 pence. Because this was never a question 10 years ago. The metaverse didn't exist. NFTs didn't really exist. Bitcoin was just starting to become a thing. And now the fact that there's this whole new dimension of law that has to be implemented to protect, oh, to protect brands. Bless me. Excuse me, actually. Um, it's a real great area, but although this isn't a finished case and there was other trademark cases I could have used within this, for example, Christian Louboutin and the Red Soul, I just feel like bringing this up to you guys that actually this part of the law is booming for the fashion industry right now and it always has been and always will be. Um, I think it's really important to see and also show you a little bit of trends within the fashion industry. And we'll also be going into the digitalization of the fashion industry in the next episode as well. Um, so this brings me to the end of this podcast it has been quite long so I'm really sorry for keeping you guys waiting 
but I just felt like it was a really good way to speak to you guys for this first episode and keep you all intrigued. So the next podcast episode will be Emerging Fashion Markets, the digitalization of the secondhand market and legal impacts. So in this next podcast of Lawish, we will delve into the topic of the, of the digitalization of the secondhand luxury fashion market and legal implications that this can have not only on the companies facilitating such processes, but also the remedies available to brands that find themselves in situations where there is alleged breaches of legal rights through the use of such markets. We will also look at consumer rights through the secondhand market and issues currently facing the industry, such as laws of exhaustion and the laws protecting against counterfeiting goods. Some of the main issues that we'll be focus on, focusing on will be within these three extremely popular brands right now. Bestier Collective, StockX and The Real Real, which is a co-signment brand as well. I'm super excited to be speaking about this because if anyone knows, I love, love, love luxury goods. And I also think that the secondhand luxury market is great for the environment, sustainable and also cheap for us Gen Zs who are struggling to get a paycheck. Purr. So that's everything in this podcast episode today. I hope you guys have absolutely loved it. Um, and if you're on my YouTube channel, I also am on Spotify now. And I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. And I hope to see you guys in the jump. If you've got any messages, make sure to send me a DM on my Instagram at Derry Moore with two E's at the end. And also you can find me on LinkedIn at Derry Moore. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this. This is the first episode of Loish. It's Derry Moore and peace out.